Welcome, everyone, to another episode of POV Crypto. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. Three days and three episodes. This is episode number two, and we have a cool guest for you. This is Pat White. Pat White, why don't you introduce yourself? What's happening, guys? I'm super glad to be here. My name is Pat White. I'm CEO of a startup in the space that's called BitAlpha, and we're working on uh, tooling for businesses that use crypto. Awesome, Pat. So me and you met at BTC Miami. I immediately, you know, could tell that you are a crypto guy, and you went on to kind of tell me how you've been in the space for a long time. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your crypto journey and how you fell down this rabbit hole? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny when we were at BTC Miami, I was talking with somebody else, and they asked me like, "When was the first time you heard about crypto?" And I I couldn't really remember. I mean, it's one of those things. I mean, this was over 10 years ago. It was over like probably eight years ago, nine years ago at this point. I think it was from a, I think someone posted the the, uh, Satoshi white paper to uh, Slashdot. So I believe if I had to really like put my finger on it, I think I read the white paper on Slashdot. And uh, ever since then, I sort of got into it right away. So I was, I think when I first read the white paper, I started mining Bitcoin and I could mine it on my GPU back at home. And it was sort of, it's one of those really funny things that this was my, my experience in uh, asymmetric risk profiles. So I had this great idea where I'm like, okay, I'm going to get this awesome, I'm going to get like a really cool gaming computer with a nice GPU, and then I'll mine Bitcoin. And then worst case scenario, Bitcoin goes to zero. And, uh, you know, I'm left with this like awesome, you know, this awesome gaming computer. And in fact, this was sort of a really funny thing was that was not actually the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is that Bitcoin goes to $10,000 and the $5,000 mining rig that I bought when Bitcoin was about $5 should have been, was basically my retirement fund. And I really should have just bought Bitcoin with that mining rig. So that's when I learned about, uh, you know, if I could have lost $5,000, but then I, you know, I always sort of thought Bitcoin was going to about $10,000. I always thought there was a sweet spot. You know, I, I don't really know how to articulate that, but I always thought there's a nice sweet spot around $10,000 where people would like the break and really like it. Were you thinking that $10,000 mark like like year one or, or when did you decide that 10000 was the right number? Like the very first time I, I interacted with Bitcoin, I'm like, if this if this hits, like there was always there was always a non-zero. And by that, I mean, there's always like a 25 to 50% chance that this just evaporates. But if this hits, the number is going to is around 10000 That was always kind of my... That was always my guess, but you can't, obviously that doesn't really count for anything because I, you know, did, I should have just bought more Bitcoin. If I really, if I really believed it that, that, that much, I would have been, uh, I would have bought more. So, so like was the Austrian school of economics stuff and all this stuff that's kind of like the narrative around Bitcoin right now, was that pretty prevalent back then? You know, essentially you kind of discovered this, you know, at the beginning slash dot, I think was one of the biggest PR things that happened in early Bitcoin. So you're definitely around for a while. Like what can you kind of talk about like the narratives around that and how people thought about investing in Bitcoin back then? Yeah, I mean, I think it was for me, it was always really easy because there's this idea of a deflationary currency that you could transfer around the world instantaneously and that you could carry in your pocket where you could carry kind of millions of dollars in your pocket. It, It was very obvious that there was there was utility here. And I think it's funny. I mean, even today, there still is discussion about whether or not Bitcoin has utility, which I think Personally, I think that's insane. Like, I think that's a, a crazy conversation to still be having, um, especially when you, ha- you you know you read these terrible stories about. And you, the, the, some some of the stories that I get really passionate about are people that are in the weed industry in California losing their entire life savings because they can't get banked. So you have these terrible stories from the fires in Santa Rosa a couple years ago, where people were storing ten thousand, a hundred thousand dollars of their life savings under their under their mattress, and then all of it burning up because they can't get banked. Um, crypto solves that problem now. Is, is an issue that, you know, is the utility enough that because you can't get banked, like, is that really a big enough problem? Like, I, I don't know. But you hear other stories about people, you know, the seizures, government seizures of people walking through airports with a bunch of cash. You know, these are all things that like, you know, maybe they're on the border of gray versus black versus white. But, you know, there's obviously utility in a coin, in some sort of uh, instrument that can carry value across state lines very, very quickly, that it'd be very hard for the government to take away from you, and that is deflationary on an algorithm versus on a, uh, you know, a political spectrum. So you know, we have this, the other, the other thing for me is I, I try to be very introspective about crypto. And so I, I you know, I'm, I'm American, I've, I was born in, in, you know, America, and I've lived here my entire life. So I, I very, I'm very cognizant that we have it really easy about crypto. I mean, I'm sorry, about money in general. 
And so, you know, I, one of my one of my co-founders had this story about, you know, he was living in the uh, the Congo and the Congo at the time, this was, you know, when he was a kid. So whatever, 20, 23 years ago. And they had a currency that was paid to the uh, to the to the franc, the French currency. And one day the it was so it was a paid uh, exchange rate. And one day France decided to basically overnight uh, cut the exchange rate by a third. And so everyone overnight had a third less, essentially had a third less money in their bank accounts. And this isn't this isn't stuff that we deal with in America. Like we haven't had any real significant inflation since the 70s. But you look at, you know, Venezuela, Iran, Argentina, the Congo back then. And these are these are real problems that countries have when politics ends up getting involved in monetary policy. In America, we, we tend to think this is not going to happen to us. And even back then, like, you know, 10 years ago, we had a really good Fed chair. We had a really good Fed chair. We had a really good president. Like, well, I don't know, really good president, but especially when I got involved by the time Obama was running, I mean, this was a very level-headed president that was really very serious about the norms of U.S. politics. So the norms in U.S. politics for a long time have been that the the Fed is not political. The president does not tweet at the Fed. The, Fed, the president does not tell the Fed not to raise interest rates. And so we as a community, you know, even 10 years ago, it, it wasn't as in our faces. But even back then, people... A lot of people don't believe, don't trust the Fed anyways, and that's you know whatever. That's there are there are people like that, and that's fine. But even for me, you know, it's the Fed is run by humans. Humans will always be beholden to political pressures, whether they admit it or not. And so you know, you you want to have in, you want to have multiple options. You want to have multiple instruments that are both uh, potentially monetary, but I mean potentially deflationary, potentially inflationary, political, apolitical, non-political. And so Bitcoin to me always slotted in this really nice position of a deflationary currency that should hold its value well against inflationary currencies, that has a non-political, completely non-political monetary policy um, and, and lets you move a lot of currency very, very quickly around the world or in your pocket. So there was just all these things that just made so much sense to me about it as a currency that I, it was hard to, to kind of discount it. But I did. I mean, obviously, even for me, I, I can't lie. I mean, if I had really believed, if I believed back then what I believe today about it, I would have I would have put, you know, $20,000 into it um, and not eaten for a month. Like that's, that's you know, there, there's levels of that. So even back then, there was a lot of doubt whether it was going to be this. And I say that that even continues today for me for to some extent, which is that I, I believe deeply in Bitcoin as a cryptocurrency, but I also recognize that it's possible Bitcoin won't be the ultimate cryptocurrency. Like I, I very firmly believe there will be a, a winner cryptocurrency. But then even even in that, my, my thinking has evolved a lot. So when I when I first got into this, I was probably more on the Bitcoin maximalist side. I'm like, oh, all these other coins are just kind of trash coins. There's no there's no real purpose for them. But my my thinking has evolved quite a bit from there, which is I I now think that you are going to have purposes for a deflationary coin like Bitcoin. You're going to have purposes for a easy to spend instant coin like Dash, and you're going to have purposes. You're going to have great uses for something like Ether for a inflationary currency. That you're going to have a, a spendable inflationary currency and then a smart contract currency. So kind of to step back one second, just reiterate that I sort of think that you're going to end up not with Dash four. though, not Dash. I, I like so I like Dash. That's we can yeah. we can talk about that. That'll be fun to to get into. Um, yeah, I like Dash too. Yeah, I like I like Dash. But I, I firmly believe there's going, to be, there's going to be four currencies that kind of end up winning, and it doesn't matter it doesn't matter who slots into these spots. But you'll have a deflationary store of value, inflationary spending coin, a smart contract gas coin, and then an instant spend coin. And I think these are all very different. I think they all mm -hmm. will look very different. Although the instant spend coin might be different than the uh, the inflationary coin. And so right now today, Bitcoin fits into there. Ethereum fits into the Bitcoin fits into the deflationary coin. Ethereum fits into the inflationary coin. Um, Dash I think fits very nicely into the instant spend coin, and then uh, and EOS, Ethereum both kind of fit into the smart contract coin. But that's that's sort of a different a different issue, mm -hmm. and can can drill into more. So I like I like the way you put that, where you know you started believing in Bitcoin, especially when there was no real like competition to it. You know, in the early days of 2013, 2014, like what coins out there that are really attractive to compete in, in, with Bitcoin. So I, I totally understand like being a maximalist then, and now that there's much more quality projects out there, um, it seems like you've kind of shifted away from uh, and in into a more of a what Christian will call a, a multi coiner or, or a poly coiner. 
Um, but I actually really like how you have, instead of doubling down on just one protocol, you've started a business in the space. And so that kind of that diversifies your, your investments, right? Because like you're as you're as a business inside of crypto, you're exposed to the crypto as a whole industry rather than just one particular chain. Um, and so I, 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 I can you talk a little bit about how um, how your startup works and, and what it's doing and and how it may or may not be dependent on one particular coin. Yeah, yeah. And that's it's been a really important part of our philosophy behind the business is that we explicitly do not, we are we are explicitly token and coin agnostic. So we mm-hmm. work with multiple coins, multiple to- tokens. Um, a lot of our customers are ICO. So if they come to us and say, hey, can you support our chain? We will very happily support it. Um, it's a really important part of our, of, our eco- of our ethos is to basically support all the coins that are out there. Um, what do you do? Yeah, so so I'll tell you about the company. Basically, the high level is that we we looked at the at at the problem of businesses using crypto, and I don't just just mean like a a you know an e-commerce store that wants to take crypto or an ICO that's holding onto a little bit. We want to look holistically, um, and even stepping back further, I you know I've been in enterprise software for a really long time. My last startup was a company called Sonata that was doing enterprise search. So we've we've really we know the enterprise space very well. And one of the things about enterprises, they they want a simple solution. You want to kind of have one thing that is a full solution for a suite of problems. And crypto fits into that so nicely. Like you don't a company going to use crypto doesn't want to have one thing for paying invoices, one thing for wallets, one thing for taxes, one thing for accounting. So our philosophy, so essentially what we built is an entire suite of tools for businesses, ICOs, companies, mid-sized companies that want to use crypto. It starts with an enterprise-grade multi-user, multi-sig wallet. Just to be really, really clear, we don't custody anything. So I think your your listeners will understand this. Sometimes when I'm talking to my, you know, my mom, I have to explain this a little bit differently. But you know, we don't custody anything. We essentially have a wallet that acts as an orchestration layer. We force all of our users to use either a hardware wallet or if it's a lower security wallet, they can use their phone. But we basically force everyone to, to control their keys offline in a mechanism. And then we have a, a enterprise-grade wallet. Um, this is one of those things that if you've, I don't know if you guys have ever tried to do a multi-sig transaction, but it's it's really non-trivial. So if you've ever tried to like set up Electrum to do a multi-sig transaction, essentially what you do is everyone sits down at Electrum and generates a, their keys. They all send their keys to each other in text files. That then generates the wallet. And then anytime they want to, and they, anytime they want to actually spend anything, someone generates the transaction, emails it to everybody else. They all email it back and then that person transmits it. So effectively, what that meant is that no one uses multi-sig wallets. I mean, it's it's not it's not fair to say that, but we have heard horror stories about people who, you know, brought in experts to set up multi-sig wallets, had had big holdings of of crypto, brought in experts, and two weeks after the expert left, you know, the IT guy is walking around with all five keys on a USB stick around his neck. Um, mm. And I think you know we this is one of those things. You know, I I can't help but thinking about the Quadringa CX situation right now because I for the last six months we've been had this startup. I talk about this in the abstract, like I, I'm like, oh, what about what if you get hit by a bus? What if something happens? Like, but this happened. I mean, this like literally Quadringa is exactly a situation where whether it was you know he yeah I, I think I I believe that he died. I mean we can that's something kind of funny like, to, or not funny to talk about. It's something to talk about. Um, I think he died, and this is one of the situations where really a well governed company would have a lot of backups for this. And so essentially, we're, we built a wallet that makes it really easy to set up multi-sig wallets. It makes it really easy to have a single person that it might have access to a bunch of wallets, so this hierarchical wallet structure. Um, and then it makes it really easy to handle all the business flows you need. So we can do sweeps. So a nightly sweep that'll move coins from point A to point B. If you need to fire someone, you can click one button and it will basically go through all of the wallets they have access to, create the transactions that need to, to basically unkey them from the wallets. And then you go and you sign it, and it moves all their coins instantly. So these are all these are all problems that individuals don't really have. If you it sounds like crypto HR. Yeah, I mean it is like it's it's one of, like if you if you own your treasure for most individuals, if you own your treasure, you own the coins. Like there's this tight coupling. Like whoever has a treasure owns the coins. But that's not the way it is for a business. Like you have the business owns the coins. You as the individual are custodying it for the business essentially. And so there's all these different problems that arise from that, from HR-based things to how you fire someone to, you know, how you how you manage sweeps. And then, of course, that doesn't even get into all the issues around accounting and taxes and all these other things. So we have an enterprise-grade multi-user multi-sig wallet. Um, you can also then use a, a watch wallet. So you can just put in a address or a XPUB, a YPUB, an EOS account, whatever it is. Um, and then you can essentially watch all of those. 
We bring those in, we make it really easy to categorize them and push them into your accounting system. And so you can basically, if you already have an accounting system, you can integrate your crypto holdings really easily with your accounting system. And then as part of that, while you're kind of categorizing it, we track all the cost basis. So that then gives us the ability to do taxes. And then the, the feature that we're launching this month that I'm super excited about is, uh, is bill pay. And so this is essentially the ability, if you have vendors that you need to pay in crypto, you can click one button. They, it's sort of like bill.com if you've ever seen that, but essentially they, they log in, they set up an invoice, and then you click one button and it sort of sends all, all the transactions at once. Um, this is another one of those problems that people, if you're not in the crypto business world, you don't think about. But if I have to pay um, 50 contractors, so every, once twice a month, I need to pay 50 contractors in crypto, um, that is incredibly non-trivial. <laughs> and so essentially what people tend to do uh, is they, so they, they get the invoice from the contractor, they go, they look up an exchange rate, they send the coin, and then they go to their accounting system and actually put in that the invoice has been paid. And then they do that again. So if you have 50 contractors, you know, we have customers that this was taking like four or five days to get through. And so we make it really easy. We integrate it all. You basically set up all the bills at once, click one button. We grab an exchange rate, create the transaction and send it right there. So make it really, really easy to do that. And then as part of that, we also have an invoicing capability. So if you if you get paid in crypto, there's a very similar problem, which is like, how do I actually, how do we do an exchange rate that's kind of fair? And so we have this nice exchange rate interface. It automatically pulls an exchange rate, holds it for a certain amount of time, makes it really easy to get paid. So it's, it's, you know, our philosophy is just any problems around crypto that businesses might have, we, we want to help solve. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I actually, I mean, all of those tools are so necessary. And kind of talking about how non-trivial it is to make transactions with crypto, you know, if you have like a hot wallet on your phone, it's really easy and nice. But as soon as you start incorporating any sort of multi-sig or uh, offline cold storage or anything like that, it just becomes exponentially more annoying. From like organizations that you work with, like what are their biggest like things that they're scared about and like what do they care about and you know why do they kind of choose you guys? Well, I think there's there's two answers there that I think are both really interesting. I mean, one is people just don't know how to do accounting for this. It's not hard. It's just not sweet spot. I mean, there's probably five people that are experts in crypto accounting in the entire world. I mean, this is such a minis- this is such a new space and such a new problem that people just don't know how they should be accounting for it. So that's that's kind of one big issue. And you can treat it similarly to foreign exchange, but even foreign exchange, I mean, not a lot. Once you get into the in the enterprise space, more large companies are familiar with forex management. But in the SMB space, you know, the mid-sized companies up to you know a few thousand people. A lot of them never touch forex, and so it's not as simple. You know, even though a lot of the accounting packages have support for foreign exchanges, accountants just don't work with it very often. And so this is—it's a really huge problem. Just how you account for it, how you handle it, what you do correctly. Um, the other thing that's really interesting is that crypto is one of the first times that—and and it's, it's not strictly the first time because there are other other examples of this—but it's one of the first times that you you tightly couple your accounting with your taxes. And so what that what that essentially means is that normally if I pay you um, so if, let's say, you know, you send me an invoice for, uh, I, I buy a burger from you, you send me an invoice, I'm going to record that. And then I get to deduct 50% of that. So in my accounting system, it, it shows that like, you know, I pay this for employee meals. And then later on in the year, I can go and deduct that. But uh, the act of categorizing it is all it be. when I'm working with fiat, the act of categorizing it is all you really need to do from an accounting perspective. With crypto, every single transaction you do is essentially a taxable event. And that is very, very different than most uh, than most companies deal with on a daily basis. So if you're an exchange, if you're a trader, you're used to this. Like every time you sell stock, that's a taxable event. You know, so you're you're very used to thinking about taxes. But if you're a construction company or if you're a media company selling ads, like this, you don't tend to think a lot about these taxable events on individual items. And so crypto has this very unique problem that every time you so depending on your tax person and depending on your tax lawyer and depending on your accountant, these things can kind of change how they interpret it. But a lot of people basically say every time you move crypto between wallets can be a taxable event, um, potentially. Certainly, what? Every, yeah, that can be. It's it, it's it depends on who you're talking to and how conservative they are. But absolutely, they that can be interpreted as a taxable event. Um, the I that's not how we we don't normally. Uh, make that recommendation. But depend again, depending on how conservative your, your tax people are, they can. 
Um, but then even the next step, certainly anytime you do a shape shift. So if you do a shape shift or a, you know, if you do an exchange before crypto between two coins, that is a taxable event, no questions asked. And so, and then obviously, if you if you send crypto away, that if I if I pay an invoice in crypto, that's a taxable event. And so there's all this there's all this infrastructure you need to track in order to do this as a business where you have to necessarily be conservative and you have to be cognizant of what you're tracking. In order to do that, there's a lot of infrastructure to actually track all this stuff. You have to track what the cost was when you bought it. You have to track what the a fair market value is when you spend it. So you can't just do it based on an invoice you on on like a certain amount agreed to. You have to be doing this based on fair market value. And then that then you have to track based on there's a bunch of different rules for how you do it, if it's last in or first in or whatever, but then you basically have to figure out if it's long-term or short-term capital gains and all this stuff. That's every time, so imagine if every time you went to buy a burger, you potentially were accruing long-term capital gains every time you use your credit card. That's obviously insane, but that's that's crypto. Do you think that the government will have to change how it views crypto for transactions to be reasonable for Americans? Like right now, you know, Tax-wise, it's really unreasonable for Americans to use crypto, even if they wanted to. Yeah, you know, it's and for for Bitcoin in particular, there are, are times that it can act more like a currency. But even then, I mean, if you're doing foreign exchanges, it, it ends up being like that. I I tend to think the tooling will catch up be, instead of the tax codes catching up. I mean, obviously, like that's why we're working on this startup. So I I don't think that you know I don't think that the IRS has any interest in making this simpler. Um, sadly, <laughs> you know, it's just not, that's just not what they do. So I think that the tooling is going to have to catch up eventually, you know, the way we do it, which is that our wallet basically tracks all this for you, for the businesses. Um, I think that more and more consumer wallets will start to pick those capabilities up as well. I just, there's no, there's no way that you can't have that. Talking about, um, the, the world of serving other, cause there are crypto companies out there. You know, I, 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 th- I think MakerDAO might pay their employees in die. I could be wrong yep. about that, and some of their listeners. Uh, some, Ripple, some Ripple just announced. Uh, did you guys see that news today? That Ripple is going to uh-huh. be paying bonuses. They like amounts like one to three million dollar bonuses in in uh, Ripple. Ah, okay. Well, bonuses and salary are, are a different beast, though. Um, so, so for companies that do you know off the top of your head, how many companies are currently out there paying their employees in cryptocurrency? So, uh, to answer so to answer your question directly, there's not many that are paying their employees their. So, do uh, you know that there's sort of a difference between an employee and a contractor, right? So, a sure. contractor. So, they're probably in the hundred plus company, number of companies that are paying their contractors with crypto at this point. Maybe even mm-hmm. more. Like, it's it's really hard to know the answer. Like, to, it's really hard to narrow on an answer around there. But a sure. lot of companies, more and more development companies that are working with Eastern European contractors are paying out right. in crypto. And a lot of this has well, to, to make sense because that's just a one-off transaction. Where it's like, "Hey, do this, and I'll pay you this much." Well, not necessarily. Down. I mean, a lot because contractors can be contractors can look very similar to a monthly employee. Like if you have a contractor that you have a long-term relationship with, and so you're paying them on a monthly cadence, that that looks very much like an employment. True. Now, the, the difference okay. is that with employees, where it gets very complicated for paying your employees with crypto is that you have to you still have to pay withholdings. So if I if I'm paying you your normal salary in crypto. I still have to withhold uh, your taxes in U.S. fiat, and so the way that we've essentially managed that is that we we integrate with some of the other payroll systems that are out there. So, like Gusto is an example of that. So, what you essentially do is wow, you, you integrate with Gusto. Yeah, so that's amazing through through zero. Yeah, and so essentially Very what you cool. do is you you go in and you set up a uh, normal payroll cycle, and then they give you the option to either do an ACH transfer or a check. And then you set it up as a check, and then just that imports into our system. We do the conversion; and it looks just like a bill pay, and we send it out. But then we let Gusto handle all of the the payroll and the the withholdings and all of that kind of stuff. Because um, that's it's, it's one of those things we haven't talked about too much. But there's we we have a really you know because I've been in crypto in a really long time. I one of the things that really annoys me, and this isn't fair. I'm not meant this isn't meant to pick on anybody. But I look at a company like BitPay that is doing a basically acting as a middleman between crypto and fiat and it it kind of like not kind of drives me insane a little bit which is that like everything we do is designed for you to be your own bank like we are bringing business banking into the 21st century where you are your own crypto bank and so this idea of that a lot of the business startups a lot of the business startups that are out there doing crypto are acting as middlemen like bitwage is taking they go from crypto i'm sorry they go from fiat to crypto to pay certain contractors bitpay takes uh, crypto from your customers and converts it to fiat for you to take into your bank account um, 
this is not the crypto way. Like this is these are mm-hmm. interesting intermediary companies. But the crypto way is that you will eventually control your coins. And this is you know the analogy I often make to this also. Not now I'm like three parenthetical statements in on my uh, original statement, but I, I make this analogy that um, the same way that companies went to the cloud. And I don't know how much you guys know about this this transition from companies from on-premise data centers up to the cloud. But you ended up having this really interesting conversation where certain companies were very comfortable going to the cloud and certain companies weren't. And companies that did not trust Microsoft or AWS, whoever it was, you know, they they still run their own data centers. And it's probably about 80-20 in terms of people that are willing to go to the cloud and people who don't. Um, I think something very similar is going to happen with people who are comfortable with custodial versus non-custodial. And so there'll be a very large percentage of companies that will never be comfortable with a custodial solution. They do not trust custodial solutions to not run away with their money, to not get hit by buses, to not keep their money safe. And so you'll have a big chunk of companies that are all holding on to their own crypto um, and, and actually have to have really strong controls and all that kind of stuff around that. So, so then stepping up one parenthetical level, um, you know, this idea, there's going to be a, a big market for people that are providing tooling. This is obviously what we believe that people that are providing tooling for businesses to be their own banks, pay their own bills with crypto, take crypto, manage crypto, pay taxes on it, all that kind of stuff. And so our, a lot of our philosophy is, I'd almost say it's sort of a Bitcoin originalist, which is that we, we're not, we don't integrate with the, with the standard banking systems. We don't actually have any KYC requirements because we don't do anything that looks like money changing or money transfers or anything like that. Everything we do is just pure, is lets you do better peer-to-peer banking and peer-to-peer uh, corporate money management. Yeah, I, I totally agree with with the idea that a lot of infrastructure infrastructure needs to be built that's not rent seeking, uh, and that's that's what got me into the world of cryptocurrency is this you know decentralized land of of absolutely no middlemen and peer-to-peer exchange and you know decentralized Uber, decentralized Airbnb, decentralized everything. Uh, and it's starting to become one of my biggest fears that uh, crypto is actually just going to swap out the old boss with a new boss. That's the <laughs> same same middleman, and, but now it's just denominated in cryptocurrency instead. Yeah. So I have to give you a lot of uh, a lot of high praise for being in the, that that uh, small group of startups that are working on creating uh, infrastructure that will remove middlemen wholly and completely. Um, I mean, there there is a, a funding issue too, where where you know. People want to build a business that that you know accrues passive or accrues money yeah. because that's that's what people want. Um, but at the end of the day, like that's you're right. That's not what the ethos of cryptocurrency is. Yep, and we we've been very clear that we we charge a per monthly cost. So we have kind of a SaaS model, but there is mm-hmm. nothing that we do that is a transaction percentage. That we don't take one percent of anything because we don't do. That's not the way crypto works. And it kind of drives me crazy when people do that, and because that's not the way crypto works. Like, there's absolutely no reason to be charging one percent uh, transaction fees because that's not what the crypto transaction fees are. Like this is mm-hmm. all peer to peer. So we, all of our, our we very firmly believe like all of our pricing is based on a per user per month model. There are no hidden transaction fees or anything like that. Yeah, totally. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in the pricing model of we're going to charge you the minimum amount necessary to dis, uh, disincentivize anybody else from forking us and providing us even cheaper model because <laughs> because we're charging such a low amount that, that there's just no value in that. So I think that's the most fair equilibria of pricing available. And I, I see that's what you guys are doing. So well, I think as a, a as a CEO, I, I want to charge a little bit more than the bare minimum. But yeah, that's uh, I, yeah, I think, fair enough. Fair I think enough. You're, you're absolutely right. Is that there's, is it there, this stuff is all going to be driving towards zero in some way. So that our, mm-hmm. our challenge is going to be continuing. I mean, I don't think this is an issue for the next five years, honestly. But after five years, there will be commoditization of this, and at that point, there's it's, the trick is finding new, new, new value to provide and new things to do. At that point, absolutely. So, speaking of a company that should have been paying you, Quadriga CX has been a growing story. Uh, the lowdown is that the CEO and founder was the only one who had uh, the keys and he died. Was it in Asia? In a small country, in a small village in India. Pat, it sounds like you've been following the story a lot closer than all of us. Will you walk us through the story real quick? Yeah. And sadly, it's a, I guess, I guess it's sad. It's sad on my humanity that I've had to follow it as more of a professional interest um, because mm-hmm. it is really interesting. But essentially the, the founder of Quadringa CX is a, it's a Canadian exchange. 
that had about 186 million Canadian dollars. I think it was 140, 130 million U.S. dollars under management. And uh, the the founder, I'll give you sort of the whole story as I understand it. The founder got married about a month ago. And as part of their honeymoon, him and his wife went to go do charity work at a uh, orphanage in a small rural town in India. So he's out there with his wife. Uh, apparently, he had a, uh, a, a medical condition called Crohn's disease, I believe it was, which is an autoimmune disorder. And so mm-hmm. as I understand the situation is that usually the treatment for that tends to be immunosuppressants. And so you're, you end up in a situation where you're potentially immunocompromised. And while he was out there, uh, he got sick. And because of this, he was in a rural town. I don't believe he made it to a larger, a larger city for medical care. Uh, and he, he basically died. So that's all incredibly sad. Now, the, the part of this where this all starts to get very crazy is that as, as part of this, he did not have, they, he was the only person who had access to his, to the cold storage wallets. So they had a cold storage mechanism where it was a laptop that he had at home that he had password protected, and he was the only person that knew the password to it. And his wife, his wife had seen him do this a number of times. His wife had seen him go and do the sweeps from the, from the main exchange wallet, the hot wallet to the cold wallet. So yeah, she, she knew that this was where it was, but they did not know the password or anything like that. So they, they brought in a, uh, I think someone said an encryption expert. I, I, I mean, I don't know what the hell that means, but, <laughs> but they brought in someone to look at the computer and it was not immediately obvious uh, to, that, to that expert uh, what was going on. And so essentially at this point, that money is completely locked up. So to kind of elaborate just a little bit more, there are now a number of conspiracy theories that this guy did not actually die and uh, went to India. And I guess, so- He of filed course, a will, right? Yeah, That's what so I there's, heard. Yeah, so the, so, apparently, so the stuff that was kind of weird is that the, his will was updated 12 days before his death. And I guess that always Do gets, we know what what the update was? Uh, I The only update I know of, I don't know much about it, but the one thing that, that made news was that he set aside $100,000 for his chihuahuas. He had uh, two chihuahuas. So he set aside $100,000 to keep them. Now, the thing that I don't think is particularly weird is that he just got married. So this is why like, I actually don't, I love a good conspiracy theory. And we could talk about that in a second. Like, I love a good conspiracy theory. I actually don't think that, that this is a conspiracy theory. I think this is gross negligence. Um, I think it is incredibly uh, just, it's insane. I mean, I, I have uh, like not, you know, I've nowhere near as much crypto he, as he has. And I am very, very careful about having like backup plans and contingency plans and things like that. Um, it's hard to believe someone who's managing $140 million of the crypto did not actually think through a backup plan, a multi-sig strategy, something like that. But it is not inconceivable but the conspiracy theory is essentially he went to India, and apparently in India it's very easy to buy a fake death certificate. That this, this is what Reddit tells me at least. I don't know. I haven't tried it. <laughs> but he went to India, tried to he bought a a death certificate, and then disappeared and is living at a hotel in the Maldives or something off of the the crypto. They they've they've done some forensic analysis on the on the accounts. So they think that the money hasn't actually moved at this point. But I mean, this is it's really hard to do forensic analysis on Bitcoin like this after the fact. So so that's the situation. Well, wait, so they, they do know what the wallet addresses are and they can see the Bitcoin in the wallets, correct? Uh, they know what some of them are. So they're, it's unclear exactly which ones oh are. Some, they don't like, even know all of them? Yeah, I don't think they know all of them. And some of the funds have moved recently. So that's just, or at least according to someone who did third party forensic analysis, some, uh-huh. some of the funds have moved recently. So, uh, you know. Oh, he's Gonzo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. he, he took that Bitcoin and ran. <laughs> He's he's hanging out in India somewhere. <laughs> just just to kind of add to the conspiracy, I have a friend who is from Vancouver, and he was a Quadriga CX user. And like four months ago, he was trying to you know get his funds off the exchange, and it was becoming very difficult to do so. And I think it took over five weeks and a lot of like back and forth with support to withdraw his funds. Um, so. He was telling me that he thought that they weren't solvent like four or five months ago. Interesting. Um, so it seems like it is very convenient that he's now gone. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> and apparently there's no contingency plan, which seems completely insane 
it would just be a normal story of an exchange, you know, stealing funds from its users. But there's a lot of little extra little bits of information here that makes it really interesting. Yeah, story. I, I hadn't heard that. That's super interesting. I wouldn't believe it. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to keep exchanges going. These things like they often go through through turmoil and and uh, liquidity issues. Um, mm-hmm. I think the thing that pushes me over the edge on the conspiracy theory, as much as I love a good conspiracy theory, is that he was with his wife out in India. And, uh, and so it's, it's hard. To, and so now she, his wife is back in, in Canada and is, it seems to be working in good faith with the, the courts and the company to try to resolve it. So it's really, I mean, you'd have to be a, a special type of uh, talented con man, I think, to yeah, have your sure. wife that deeply involved. And for her, like, I mean, it's obvious this is terrible for her. Like, there's just no, right. you know, I, I assume she was there when he died. Like, there's all these things that are really terrible. So it's, it, that, to me, pushes over the edge on the conspiracy theory. Well, we will know because, well, maybe not because since some Bitcoin addresses are missing, maybe we won't know. But we will know if the ones that we do know, if funds get moved there. So maybe in six months, we see a, a some story about how the funds got moved. And, yeah, and I then, could totally yeah. see one of those like conspiracy 45 minute like episode <laughs> movie things about this in like five years down the line. Oh, yeah, on History Channel, like after after the aliens one, but before the, the mermaid one. Exactly. So let's have a hypothetical scenario here. So let's say that Quadringa, Quadringa Exchange was a customer of BitAlpha. Yeah. What could you guys have done? Like how would how would they have been set up to be protected? Yeah, and regardless for yeah, bid alpha or anyone else. I mean, at the end of the day, what you normally want to do is you know we make a big deal. I think in the world of talking about hot wallets versus cold wallets, and that's that's mm-hmm. you know if you're an exchange, you can't necessarily you there's sort of a middle ground there of a offline wallet or like a hardware controlled wallet versus a software controlled wallet. So I, I won't talk necessarily in terms of of hot versus cold, but the idea would be to have a five uh, a a five multi sig uh, wallet set up. So you're going to have five people that are on that that are the CEO, the COO, the CFO, maybe the bookkeeper, and then probably the the lawyer as kind of a backup um, bookkeeper. As Do all know. five of those people have control over the funds, or is it all five of them need to be together to control the funds as a unit? So within that, you what you would essentially do is you would set up a three of five multi-sig. So what that means is okay. that three of the five people all have to sign a transaction for it to actually go through. Um, and you, you know who's signing, correct? Yeah, and you know who's signing. You you can see who's signing based on the the public key that goes into it. Um, so that you know that's how there's and there's a lot of different ways to orchestrate that because then then depending on how paranoid you are, you can use something like Bit Alpha to orchestrate it. Um, Square has their own mechanism for that's their own cold storage, you know, that uses. Um, uh, hardware TPMs, hardware hardware security modules on servers to handle this. There's a lot of different ways to handle that, but essentially what you're going to do is a is a multi-sig wallet for the the coordinate. So I was just looking online. It looks like Quadringa might have had ten employees. So I think that this exact for a company like the size of Quadringa, what you would really want to see is the CEO, the COO, the CFO, the CTO, and then their lawyer all on a multi-sig wallet, and three of the five of them have to have to move it. Um, the way that we set it up is that we'll ge- we'll tend to have multiple levels. So we'll have a a cold wallet, quote unquote enterprise cold wallet that is highly secure. That, that would be that three of five from all your executives. Um, that on then once a week we would shift a certain amount of funds into kind of a petty cash wallet. So whether they're paying people or they just need to have money available for withdrawals, like your buddy was going through, we would essentially have a we we set up a process where once a week it moves. $50,000 into a petty cash wallet. That wallet then has lower restrictions. So from the, the transaction from the main wallet to the petty cash wallet is going to take, you know, three people are going to have to sign that. It's going to be, it's it's not the end of the world, but it is it is a bit of a hassle. Like it's going to take a couple hours for everyone to get online and everyone to sign it. it. It like, you know, even with our orchestration, we make it really easy, but you still, everyone still has to go and do the work of it. Then you have a petty cash wallet or a kind of a more normal use wallet that has maybe one of two. So the CFO plus the bookkeeper, the CFO and the CEO plus the bookkeeper, and that would be like a one of three. So any of those people could spend those coins. So that- you can make this like pretty modular, right? You can make wallets that are set up. So like it's it's just two of the five so long as one of them is the CEO or it's two of the five if it's the lawyer and the bookkeeper, stuff like that. Is that possible? Yeah, there's there's a lot of different capabilities for how you can do it. And then you can also just, I mean, it could be someone completely different. So you could have, you know, Billy Bob in accounting has access to the petty cash, but then also mm-hmm. the CEO and the CFO do. And so in that situation, what you're doing, I mean, these, these are all risk, it's all risk to reward. I mean, at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you're making a decision between 
between how much hassle you want versus what you can let some of them do their job. So that's why you set up this multi-tier strategy where you have the vast majority are kind of a pain in the ass to move, but then you have a, a separate place that makes it really easy. And then if Billy Bob decides to run away with $100,000, that really sucks. But that's that's you you have made the determination that that's a, a risk you're willing to take. Um, and then you can pursue him him separately for that. So that's that's kind of the, the basics of this. Now, once you start getting to larger, so something like Square, the way they actually handle this is is really interesting because once you get to a larger company, you still need to you you can't go much further. I think that the most you can do on a on a multi sig is twenty is a maximum of twenty signatures. So n of twenty is the biggest you can do um, based on the opcode size. So the you know at a, at a bigger company, you have to have separate issues because. You know, Jack Dorsey isn't signing transactions for Square every day. You know, that's that's just not his job, mm-hmm. um, and they're probably managing a lot more money. So what they've done is they they've actually set up a system that is kind of a double. It's sort of a double blind system. So they essentially have uh, a cold storage in one loc. They have they have like three or four cold storage locations around the world, but the keys are not all in that location. So they actually have keys that are sp- split between two or three locations, and so essentially. Their their concept is they still have a multi-sig. It still requires a certain number of people to do it. But their idea is that basically you cut down the risk of collusion. Because obviously for them, their worst case scenario is that three is that there's a hundred million dollars sitting somewhere and then three employees all decide like, hey, wouldn't it be great to live in Aruba for the rest of our lives? <laughs> and so they all they, they collude and basically steal it. And so what they've done is they've actually set up firewalls and you you essentially have to sign the transaction in three different locations. And they've set up firewalls so that it's very difficult for the people to know both who's required to sign a particular signature, so that I I cannot deterministically uh, from I cannot deterministically look at a transaction and decide who are the counter signers of that particular transaction. That's one part of it, and the second part is that they because they have this geo distance and they're they're in different countries and I think tend to speak different languages and they they have instructions not to talk to each other. They don't even know each other very well. So they've gone to the additional, so they don't just have the cryptographic security, they've actually gone one level further and have op- operational security around around their individuals. So very, it gets very similar to like what you expect from like the CIA or how they handle OPSEC. I'm curious to hear like, what are the trends that you're seeing now? Like, obviously you have a pretty unique perspective of getting to work with, you know, all of these, you know, ICOs, exchanges, whatever, all these enterprise level clients. Like, you know, what kind of trends do you see on their end when it comes to crypto? Um, payments out in crypto is is the biggest thing that we see. Everyone is getting requests to pay in crypto, and I think that even goes for bigger companies. I mean, we we deal with kind of ICOs and SMBs, but you know, there are more and more company, there are more and more country, uh, people in foreign countries, and I'd say Eastern Europe in particular, that don't have a lot of faith in their uh, in their mother fiat and are looking for transfers in Bitcoin. Plus, just the issues of getting crypto. I mean, we you know we touched on this earlier. About how spoiled we are Christian's in America. Christian's really, really stoked about that. Well, you know, we touched on this earlier how, how how spoiled we are in America, but like it costs one hundred and fifty dollars to to send in certain situations to send money out to India, and like if you're getting paid you know three hundred dollars a month, like what are you going to spend one hundred fifty dollars to send three hundred dollars a month? I mean, it's insane. And so there's more and more people that are are you know the eastern basically there's more and more contractors offshoring that is getting paid in crypto, and I think we're just going to see that go through the roof. I mean, I think that that's going to be the biggest use of crypto over the next like couple of years is going to be or the biggest use biggest use of business crypto will be uh, paying contractors in other countries. That's that's very exciting. How big of a force is that? That's a good question. Um, I you know I I tend to think it'll get up to. You know, you know, we've never done. We should do a. We should do a, a podcast or a, a blog post and maybe look some research on this. My my gut is that right now the market size is probably around ten million dollars. I th- this I'm just you know fair warning. I am pulling that number out of my ass completely. But just from we the do pe- that here. Yeah, yeah. As long as, as long as everyone's cool with that. <laughs> um, but just from the people we've talked to and the and the uh, companies we work with and just sort of seeing the the amount of money, I think the current payment market is probably around 10 million dollars um i think the overall outsourced payment market is is in the 100 billion dollar range so i think there's a pretty far way to go so i i would not be surprised if this starts going to a billion or a couple billion over the next few years so on that note uh what would you like to see other startups or maybe if you had access to like you know 50 more employees like what what other infrastructure needs to get built in order to really enable that future 
So the thing that we're that we're working on right now that I, I if I had 50 more employees we would do it a lot faster. But for us it's more of a hobby. So we are mm-hmm. you know we talked about this idea of centralization versus decentralization. So right now we we operate as a SaaS service. So we are a web service that uh, you know we we keep a lot of information in our servers uh, as kind of a SaaS application. So I don't know are you guys are you guys coders? I didn't even ask. No, no unfortunately okay. not. Yes, yeah, so we would be like so we we, we have bring servers. people smart like you on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> awesome. Um, and so we have servers, and so we keep our data on the servers. And so when you when you use BitAlpha, there is a certain amount of data that we have we have access to. And so we're very cognizant that that's that's not the way that this is going to go. Eventually, for our higher security customers, they're going to want to be able to run this on premise. And really, this is where something like the where kind of blockchain tech sort of comes in interesting because there would be really nice to have a a really easy to use blockchain peer to peer solution for doing uh for essentially for running software so to kind of step back i i don't really love blockchain it's really funny for me to say that but like i don't know where you guys found this but in the blockchain versus crypto world i think cryptocurrency is the killer app for blockchain oh yeah buddy i've seen maybe one or two interesting applications of blockchain but the vast majority are are the the biggest like bullshit you just don't need uh in the entire world so I get, I get, you know, this is kind of like my rant. I'll get, I'll go on a pat rant for a second, but um, I get really frustrated seeing startups getting funded for a, essentially for something that's like AI on blockchain when it's, you don't need blockchain for this. Like you need a, a database would do it just fine. And so, you know, I, I always hesitate to say I want to see blockchain on this particular problem, but there is a world for a really good peer to peer database that essentially like the, and this is getting kind of wonky. I don't know how interesting this is, but the idea is that I, I kind of see software, what's happened with enterprise software over the last few years is that it went from being on-premise to being in the cloud to being hybrid, which is this idea that some of it's running the cloud and some of it's running on-premise, but always running on servers. And the, the thing that I think is going to change is I think more and more of high security software will actually end up looking very similar to BitTorrent, where there'll be peer-to-peer databases that you run a, you run a fat client on your computer it sets up a peer-to-peer network with a bunch of other computers that are, it's a permission peer-to-peer. Essentially, it looks a lot like a permission blockchain. Like, we can just call it that. That's fine. Uh, but it is also, you could just call it a peer-to-peer distributed database. It doesn't really matter at that point. Um, it doesn't have proof of work. It doesn't have any of these other things. But the idea is basically putting high security data and end-to-end encryption on fat clients on computers and then using the using servers to store some amount of data but really putting the heavy lifting on the computers themselves. So that's something that I'm, I'm waiting for a startup or an open source project, or maybe we'll just build this at some point that would make it a lot easier for us to basically take our server app as it exists today and turn it into kind of what I would consider a high security peer-to-peer enterprise app. So can you super duper dumb that down for our listeners who maybe didn't follow that? Like how would that impact them or how would that impact the businesses that that this would be relevant for? So I think a great example is is Signal. If you're if you're familiar with Signal um, and the, the messaging mm-hmm. app Signal and how it does end-to-end encryption, Signal is a really amazing product. I mean, they've done a phenomenal job building it where essentially you have very, very, very high high assurances that if I send you a message on Signal, no one else can read that. It is. It goes from my fat client on my phone to the fat client on your phone. It traverses their servers, but they have absolutely no capabilities of reading that. And they've added a whole bunch of security in there, so that even if you, even if one of your keys was compromised, they would only be able to read a few messages. I mean, they've done a phenomenal job building it. So for certain high security things, like financial financial products, are a high security. Uh, it's a high security bit of software. And so if you don't want your cust- if you want to be very very careful about your customers knowing how much money you have. Uh, maybe for illegal reasons or not, doesn't really matter. Um, you you don't want a service like ours to have to be able to host your data. You want to host all the data yourselves. So you almost want like a signal for the tech that we're building, which is that it, it encrypts it all. Only you and the person that you're sharing it with are able to see it. We might it might be traversing our servers, but we can't see it. We can't see deep into it. Um, and that's sort of the that's sort of a really powerful play, direction for all to go. So all the DApps that are out there. Now this sort of gets interesting. Is like I I was having a discussion yesterday with someone who said that a DAP is just a smart contract. I don't I don't actually strictly agree with that. I think that there are DAPs that are smart contracts, but DAPs to me are peer to peer infrastructures. 
So like, you know, the marketplace that's out there that's peer-to-peer, that to me is a dApp. You know, the new bit the new BitTorrent, BitTorrent protocol that uses coins, that's a dApp. CryptoKitties, is it a dApp? I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's just a smart contract. But I, you know, I digress about that. Um, and so I, so the, I want I want to see more infrastructure build up to be able to build dApps, these peer-to-peer applications that don't touch servers. Um, in a much more secure way with a lot more capabilities behind it. That software, that those APIs and those libraries and that software just doesn't really exist right now. I I would also like to see that that utopian future come into <laughs> existence. I, I I don't understand them too well, but uh, conceptually, mesh networks get me really really excited. Uh, I heard some story about um, how Chinese yeah, uh, people are, are communicating through mesh networks from going from phone to phone. So it's the only way to. Yeah, it was during during the protests in Hong Kong. There's a there's a chat app that they use that's a, uses peer to peer over Bluetooth to do mesh networking. It's it is phenomenal. I mean these these this is the future. Um, but it's you hear about these things like that because it's really hard to build that stuff today. And I know, I mean, totally. I'm, a, I'm a longtime software engineer. I mean, I we haven't gone down this path of building it because it's a pain in the ass to build. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm really excited for for the next generation of this once there's some good open source libraries and some good infrastructure to really support peer-to-peer applications like that. And yeah, and you're totally right. That's not like a mesh network has nothing to do with a blockchain or any or cryptocurrency, but it is its very similar category of peer to peer decentralized applications. So, oh, yeah. Well, and, and you I'm, know that if that guy, if the if the guy that wrote, because it was it was a cool project, the guy who wrote the uh, messaging app in Hong Kong was just a, it was just mm-hmm. a college kid. It was like, I think he was in that, it was like 18 or something. Um, and you know that if he was in America, he would go and be raising VC money on, you know, blockchain peer to peer messaging. Like right, the blockchain right. for messaging. And it's just like, no, no, no. This is these these are problems that are really well understood before we had blockchains. Like these are like these are well understood mesh networking and distributed systems problems. Yeah, I haven't really thought about all that that subject matter before, but I am a fan of starting up this new conversation of what is a DAP and including things that aren't just plain old smart contracts. Well what do you and, think? Is CryptoKitties a DAP? Um I mean, the, the jury, we haven't even defined DAP. So if anyone tells you they know what a DAP is versus isn't, they're they're wrong. And they just need to be, they needed to have started their sentence with, I think. Yeah. Uh, so what do I think a DAP is? It's a, it could just be a single smart contract. If that, like, I guess Uniswap, if you're familiar with the decentralized exchange Uniswap, that's a very simplified uh, exchange where one transaction goes in and your ether goes in and your token comes out inside of one transaction. So non-custodial, decentralized, et cetera. That's it. That's a DAP. And that's also just a single smart contract. Yeah. Uh, and then also what you're talking about where there's peer-to-peer infrastructure may- maybe mixed with a smart contract or, or not, or mixed with a blockchain or not. If it's, if it's decentralized, no single point of failure, peer-to-peer, and it does something, that's adapt too, and that's the issue and with CryptoKitties, we- and that's where I that's where I would draw the line because CryptoKitties is highly centralized. So part of their smart contract mm-hmm. is so they have they have four parts of their smart contract. The fourth is the piece that actually generates the kitty from it. That part is completely hidden, and you have to go to their website mm-hmm. for that piece to run to view it. And so I I, I have trouble calling that adapt. Because That's it is fair. it is centralized. Just like I would never call what we do a DAP. Like we're not a DAP. We're we're a web service. We're a yeah, you know, we're fair. a SaaS product. Maybe we need to get Jackson Palmer in on this and start a <laughs> is this DAP decentralized enough? <laughs> so I have a question. Like, do you guys think that DAPs are gonna be significant in the future? Because I kind of have like I, I feel like maybe there'll be like these decentralized protocol I mean like is BitTorrent a DAP? I don't know. I think that's pretty significant. But yeah, BitTorrent. I would say like, BitTorrent was the original DAP, right? Yeah. Or like not agree. original. Maybe maybe say Napster was the original DAP. But in terms of like today, now that was centralized. Yeah, it was. Well, yeah, that's true. See, that's uh, the difference, wire, right? Sorry. <laughs> but in terms of like like things that are out there today that I would say and say like absolutely this is a DAP. Like damn, like BitTorrent is absolutely a DAP. But then Pirate 100%. Bay is centralized. Hundred percent agree. But Pirate Bay is centralized. <laughs> But Pirate Bay has anonymity, right? And yeah. I think that anonymity is really important here too. And I, I kind of talked to David about this. It's like, I, I, I don't take any of these dApps seriously until there's some anonymous founders that are involved and uh, anonymous <laughs> like contributors. Otherwise, like you know, it's just easy to take out the leaders. Yeah, yeah, that's what you mean. The, the I'd say the litmus test for a dApp is that you. Uh, I guess I care less the, of an anonymity of the founders and more that it would be incredibly difficult to to take it down by a, it'd be incredibly difficult for a central authority to take it down. 
And so things like CryptoKitties, it would be incredibly easy for the U.S. government to take down CryptoKitties. It'd be incredibly easy for the U.S. government to take down um, some of the poker sites that are out there, um, and even some of the decentralized exchanges, until they really have the peer-to-peer aspects, uh, they too are pretty easy to take. They would be pretty easy to take down. Yeah. Cool. Well, I, I, I this was that. a super wide-ranging conversation. <laughs> Is there anything that we want to kind of add on to it? Or uh, we're getting close to an hour here, so it might be a good time to uh, to sign off. Uh, I'd, I'd offer the, a small bit of advice to, to pay your taxes. So this is the, the first year where Coinbase and a few other guys are going to be sending 1099s to the IRS. So I'm not, you know, I, when, I, when I tend to talk to people in crypto, there's some people are like, you know, I'm never fucking paying my taxes, like taxes are for losers. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely, man, I agree. Like I 100% support you, just don't name me during your indictment. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this is the first year that they're sending 1099Ks to the IRS. So what that's going to say is that they're not going to tell the IRS, this is just for everyone's information, and this is how I understand it. Do your own, you know, uh, disclaimer, lawyer. I am not a lawyer, and I'm not your tax advisor. Um, do your own research. But as I understand this year, that Coinbase will be sending your taxes. They will send the IRS a note that you have holdings on Coinbase, or that you have bought crypto on Coinbase. But they will not send how much you've bought or sold. So it's a good compromise. It's it is. It's it's a good compromise. It's right there. Probably in the next couple of years, they'll go to the point where they're actually sending a real 1099B, which is what you get from your stockbroker. Um, but uh, just be aware that there's if you're in the U.S., there's a chance that the government will know that you are that you are transacting crypto. So, uh, you know, pay your pay your taxes. Or don't. What the hell do I care? I got all my crypto hacks yesterday, so I don't ho- I have any more yeah. IRS if you're listening <laughs> to that. Yep. What if you're using Binance? Uh, I don't know. That's yeah, a- Binance don't give a fuck. Yeah, I don't think they give a fuck. That's a really good but question. But they take your credit card. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> that's, Binance is a whole nother episode. Yeah. <laughs> right, have you, I'm sure, have you guys done a Tether episode yet? No, uh, but- have we? We've talked about stable coins a decent yeah. amount. Uh, David done, is a, a maker coins. connoisseur, so stable coins are a constant topic. All right, Pat, thanks for coming on to the, the podcast. That was a really great uh, point of view. Uh, so really appreciate you coming on and sharing your, your vantage point from what you see of the uh, ecosystem. My pleasure, guys. Absolutely delightful talking to you. Pat, where can people find you? Uh, tell people, give one last show about BitAlpha. Go, go for all that stuff. Definitely. We're BitAlpha. We're doing tooling for businesses that use crypto www.bitalpha.com you can find me at pat white on twitter and uh i think that's or at at bit alpha also all right guys go follow the man go follow the business also follow the podcast at pov crypto pod you can find me at trustless state christian yeah you can find me at ck underscore snarks ck underscore snarks thanks for listening guys and uh yeah thanks for joining pat my pleasure she goes tiptoe She goes tiptoe She goes tiptoe Wandering down the road Her name is Anesthesia You know she'll sleep tall Oh,